Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Blokeology, Evidence-Based Health, Fitness and Lifestyle. My name's Dr. Ewan Lawson and in this episode we have an interview with the rather excellent Dr. Charlotte Hardman. Charlotte is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychological Sciences at the University of Liverpool and we get into discussing all about the psychology of appetite and eating behaviour, thinking about health behaviour change and all those little wrinkles around eating that are so important and we have to consider when it comes to you know, tackling our own eating behaviours, helping our children, thinking about it in society at large as well. So that's coming up in a few moments. Thank you all very much for contacting me about the podcast. It's very much appreciated. Um, as per usual, I will say it again. If you haven't signed up already, please do scoot along to the website, blokeology.io forward slash journal uh, for the Blokeology newsletter. And I'll be delighted to send that out to you every couple of weeks. I'm feeling quite invigorated about the podcast at the moment. I was lucky enough to spend a few hours chatting on BBC Radio Cumbria last night on uh, the program they've got called The Gathering. And The Gathering just a bit of an opportunity to spend an evening with the host, Helen Milliken, um, and a couple of guests who just talk about all sorts of topics. And last night I was on there with uh, Steve Bland along with Helen. And Steve Bland is the husband of Rachel Bland. And you re may remember that Rachel is um, a radio, she was a journalist, a Radio 5 Live presenter, um, but she died of breast cancer um, uh, just recently and had an incredibly successful podcast with a couple of other amazing ladies, um, you, me, and the big C. And the podcast is just going from strength to strength, and Steve remains heavily involved in that. So we had a really good conversation about, well, about cancer, about all sorts of different areas around health. But we also talked about podcasts, and I was just reminded that of my enthusiasm to get involved. It's an opportunity to delve into areas that perhaps don't get covered in depth um, in more regular places. And that's what I hope to continue to bring you on the podcast is get a chance to speak to experts, to really kind of look at the evidence and, you know, dig into that research, understand the subtleties and the nuances. And because it almost always is a little bit more complicated than the headlines that we might read or in a single newspaper article or certainly on social media feeds somewhere. So it's a bit of an opportunity to explore some of these in more depth. Um, and I um, certainly hope that they're continuing to um, be useful for yourselves as well. Getting back to this episode and my conversation with Charlotte Hardman. So uh, Charlotte has done research in all sorts of areas. Um, her publications are just make up a fascinating list of looking at, you know, thinking about eating, psychological dis distress, the emotional factors involved. But we also talked about things like how uh, marketing can influence children's eating and food intake. And we got into quite a really interesting discussion around um, low-calorie beverages, the Diet Coke effect as well, and what impact that has on um, our eating in the way that we go about controlling what we eat as well. So the, the first thing I started off by asking Charlotte was to tell me a little bit more about the big mistakes we make when it comes to thinking about food, psychology and eating. I think sort of one of the main misconceptions is people say, oh, well, eating is just about hungry, when being hungry. So we eat when we're hungry, we stop when we're full, simple as that. And I think if you just think back to your own behaviour, that you can quite quickly challenge 
that assumption. Um, you know, if you think back to the last thing you ate, maybe not your breakfast because that's a bit different, but maybe think back to the last thing you ate yesterday and then start to really think, well, why did I eat that? So, you know, eight o'clock when I was sat on the couch, why did I then go and get some chocolate? Was I really hungry or was there another reason? Um, and, and quite often it is might be to do with our mood. So it might be, you know, I had a bit of a hard day, fancy something nice at the end of the day to reward myself. And, and some people, that reward might be going and eating some nice tasty food. There are other things as well. So um, quite often we will eat at particular times, not necessarily because we're hungry at that time, just because that's the time we usually eat. There are all sorts of cues. We go into the kitchen, we see the fridge, or maybe I'll get myself something to eat. Somebody brings cake into work all these sorts of cues in our environment which can lead us to eating when we might not necessarily be hungry. But often it's a sight of nice tasting food which suddenly kind of makes us feel like we're hungry because we kind of think, oh, I'd really like to eat that. It's going to be really nice. Yeah. Do you have a, are there particular sort of traps that people fall into when it comes to, their, to trying to establish healthy behaviours with their, with their food? Uh, I think there's lots of traps. I mean, I think I think one of the traps is people kind of think, right, I'm going to be really good today. I'm going to get up and I'm not going to have any bad foods at all. I'm just going to eat good foods. And I think sort of thinking about good and bad foods in that way probably isn't that helpful um, because it's all about moderation. Um, and if we cut out all the things that we really, really like, then we're going to be a bit miserable. And, you know, anyone who's dieted will know if you suddenly can't have your food that you really, really like and really, really enjoy, it, it's pretty miserable. And you start to feel a bit down and a bit depressed. And you're sort of then you're sat there on your couch eight o'clock when you'd normally go and have your tasty treat thinking, oh, well, <laughs> what have I got instead? Um, the other thing as well is if you really, and this is backed up by loads of research, if you really kind of strictly try to control what you're eating, then that can make you more susceptible uh, to what we would call the disinhibition effect. So disinhibition refers to this sort of loss of inhibition, loss of control over eating. Um, and so one idea is if you're really, really trying hard to control your food intake and to diet, actually by doing that, it's quite mentally challenging counting calories is quite hard having to resist nice tasting food is quite hard and one idea is that eventually you just get to the point where you say oh I can't do this anymore and you just go crazy and it's sort of it's psychology it's referred to it's the disinhibition effect but also the what the hell effect <laughs> which basically just you just think what the hell I'm sick of this I'm just gonna eat anything um so person goes and eats overeats and then they feel really guilty afterwards and think right, I'm going to be better the next day. I'm going to do better. Tomorrow will be better. And in this way, like we can sort of get caught in these cycles of trying to not eat particular foods and eventually it all gets very hard. So we have a what the hell effect and then we just beat ourselves up and feel really guilty about it afterwards and sort of feel, oh, I'm a terrible person. I must do better. But actually these sorts of negative emotions in uh, relation to eating are counterproductive and not very helpful long term. Yeah, so I, we, we should definitely come back to that whole emotional aspect around eating. The disinhibition yeah. effect, I, I mean, I've heard of it, but I hadn't ever heard of it in that, this sort of context, actually. Yeah, and I guess yeah. that, uh, one of the things we often think about dieting and crash dieting is that we, we know that crash dieting is associated with this terrible tendency to put weight back on again. 
but it's almost it's almost always thought of in physiological terms as a kind of a, the body's reaction to starvation. But there's obviously yeah. a really important psychological effect as well. Yes, and I think it's that psychological deprivation. It's that you're being so you've got physiological deprivation, as you said, being deprived, being deprived, uh, deprived of calories and particular macronutrients. But there's that psychological deprivation, which is being deprived of nice tasting things. You know, we are all uh, we're all very as, as human beings, we're very responsive to to rewards, to positive reinforcements, um, and there are basic things that we need for survival so food water etc uh, but for some people food is is sort of even more rewarding because it provides this great source of pleasure and enjoyment and if you are somebody like that and if there are particular foods that you really love and find really enjoyable to cut those out is very hard mm. um, and so it's all about kind of what, what you do instead and how you replace that um, you know there's all sorts of foods out there now which are designed to kind of mimic some of these sorts of foods, but they'll be lower calorie. Um, or it might be kind of things like, well, instead of being sat on the sofa having your, your chocolate, maybe you do something else instead to try and replace that routine. But it's all about kind of trying to find something that, that is going to sort of fill that void, I guess, that, that food might have been filling. Yeah. Um, gosh, my head just sort of whirring as you speak, but you almost need like a, you know, a psychological approach to dieting or to, it's not, dieting's the wrong word, almost the psychological approach to eating is kind of so, is, is so important, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. I think it's understanding how our emotions actually influence what we eat. So we're not just responding to a physiological deficit in calories, we're responding to, to what's going on in our head. Um, you know, there's loads of things going on. We're very influenced by what other people are doing in our environment. And there's a huge literature in psychology about how we're influenced by what other people are doing. Mm. And in particular, social context. Perhaps if we're not quite sure how to behave, we might kind of look to other people and see, well, how much are the other people eating? So there's a whole load of studies which have kind of got people in and paired them up with, with other people and then measured how much people are eating when they're with strangers or when they're with friends or when they're on their own and so we know that social influences are very important yeah and but presumably they could go either way though can they in terms of it just it just depends what other people are doing we want to be in the we, in the in group as it were we want to be in the in group yeah but then equally we don't want to be seen as being over as being greedy mm. and overeating so lots of studies have been done where they've um, manipulated the behavior of the other person so in psychology we tend to call that person a confederate they're somebody who's in on the experiment but the participant doesn't know so the participant just thinks they're another participant but actually the confederate has been told by the researcher to behave in a particular way and so the confederate can be told to eat a lot of food or eat not very much food and that, that is very influential on how the participant behaves so if you're with somebody who's kind of filling up their plate that you might kind of think well I will too that gives me a license to fill up my plate too but if you're with somebody who's hardly eating anything then you're going to be less likely to go up and fill up your plate because you don't want to appear greedy and uh, there's really interesting effects as well sort of when you have two women together or when you have a male two males together or when you have male female pairs as well oh, yeah. so, so it, it's, it's it's an interesting effect but yeah it, it it does 
depend a lot on sort of the characteristics of, of the people in the room. Yeah, I love psychological research. I, there's always that kind of duplicity associated with it. They, the participants think they're going in to do one thing. And in fact, the psychologist is almost inevitably measuring something else. Yes, absolutely. So we, we do a lot of, of those in my group in Liverpool. So we'll invite participants in under the guise of, well, you're going to do an experiment about mood and cognitive performance. <laughs> and then we might say, oh, we've just got some cookies here which have been left over. <laughs> or, oh, we're, we're, we're going to give you lunch because we've made you stay for so long. So we've got you some lunch. And then, yes, we will often covertly measure um, <laughs> what people are eating. Obviously, we fully debrief the participants at the end. Um, yeah, I always think that the ethical permissions must be interesting for that. You must have to go through it in some detail about potential impacts. It must be quite challenging getting ethical permission to make sure you're not, you know, you're not causing people problems. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so we go through a very rigorous ethical mm. uh, procedure to do all these sorts of studies. And I, I think sort of it's all about this sort of cost-benefit analysis. Actually, what the studies tell us about eating are really, really important um, you know, mm. particularly with, with obesity and everything. Um, so I think it does kind of justify the minor deception um, that, that we are using. Because if we told people that we were measuring their oh, yeah. eating, obviously the results would be invalid. But we would always fully debrief participants at the end and explain to them why we use deception and what the purpose was. And we'd also always give people a list of, of contact numbers if taking part in any experiment has raised any issues. So we do it in as a sensitive as possible yeah it's thrown up some wonderfully revealing insights into the the human mind absolutely no question so it's a before we must talk about obesity and emotion and that related to food psychology but before i asked that i noticed that you had a paper in physiology and behavior one of you're one of the co-authors and i wonder if you can talk about this about low calorie beverages because yeah, i think yeah. so it's, it's, it's almost like the diet coke effect i suppose oh, I know. Is, is what we're yeah, aiming yeah. at here isn't it? you i'm surprised you didn't you almost needed that shoehorned into the t- magic. You might have had terrible copyright concerns if you'd done that. But it's a what? What were the main findings from that study about the, the how? Yeah. You know that it's that classic. You go to the chip shop and I'll have a bag of chips and a diet coke, please. Kind of slight mm-hmm. paradox. What actual mm-hmm. impact do low calorie beverages have on us? Oh, it's, I mean, this is such a great area. I mean, low calorie sweeteners. If you're sort of talking about you know, debates in nutrition, low calorie sweeteners are kind of one of the, you know, the most debated food products, um, well, uh, food or nutrition products that you can get in terms of whether they're good or bad. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think you've just got to look at the evidence. So in that particular study, uh, we were interested in that very effect. So if people do consume a low calorie sweetened beverage with their meal, does that sort of give them this license to overconsume. So do they think, well, I can eat loads more food. So in the study you mentioned, we did something very similar again. We invited people into our lab. We gave them this lunch under the guise that we had to give them lunch because they'd have to abstain from eating before the study. Um, but what we also did was we manipulated whether low-calorie sweetened beverages were available with the lunch or not. So some people could consume low-calorie sweetened beverages, so like Diet Coke things like that with their lunch and some couldn't and we also uh, recruited people who were frequent consumers of low calorie sweetened beverages so people consuming sort of three cans of diet coke a day quite quite heavy consumers compared to people who never consumed them and interestingly what we did find there in the people who were frequent consumers was we found they actually consumed fewer calories overall when they had low calorie sweetened beverages as part of their lunch compared to the people for whom they weren't available 
So it sort of goes against this idea that people are thinking, oh, well, I can just eat anything because I'm being healthy. Certainly in this group of participants, that didn't happen. But what was also really interesting, and going back to the conversations we had about emotion, was that for the frequent consumers, when the low-calorie sweetened beverages weren't available, and so when they'd eaten more calories, they felt more guilty about their food intake. And they also felt like they were less in control of their food intake, which links back to what we were saying about losing control and disinhibition. So what that actually suggested to me was that the low-calorie sweetened beverages were actually helping them mm. to eat less and helping them to actually just feel a bit better about their eating and to feel more control in their eating. And this is all tapping into the concept of self-efficacy, which is all about we need to feel in control of what we're doing. We need to feel that our behaviours are successful and that's really important in the context of eating if you feel like you're just dieting and you're trying everything and nothing's working your self-efficacy will be quite low whereas if you feel like you found a strategy which helps you then that's going to boost your self-efficacy so it's almost like for these people they'd, they'd found their strategy which helped them and people would say well you know when I'm craving something sweet they help me because it's a nice sweet tasting drink but I don't have the additional calories Oh, gosh, that's fascinating. So, I mean, yeah. I, th I threw that sort of chips and Diet Coke thing out there, but actually the evidence yeah. would suggest that, in fact, by having a Diet Coke, you probably have, you know, your evidence, your experiment showed that you have you have fewer calories, you you're, you're tend to consume less. In, in that group of participants, so yes. this was in people who frequently consumed them. Mm. So, yes, if you were to do it with, uh, so we didn't see that effect in the people who were the non-consumers. Mm. So. So if it was somebody, say, who never normally consumed them and then had a diet coke, then, you know, you might see that sort of effect. But what, what we found with the um, the frequent consumers was that these were people who were quite motivated to reduce. So they, they tended, they had a higher body weight than the non-consumers, uh, but they were very motivated to reduce their calorie intake. And so it, it seemed that part of their strategy was using low-calorie sweetened beverages and certainly we showed that when you take them away and they're not available then these individuals then would go on to eat more calories and we've recently um, this study isn't published yet but we're writing it up at the moment we've we've looked at that um, over a longer period of time mm -hmm. so this is one of my PhD students Neve Maloney who did this work she um, got people to abstain from low-calorie sweetened beverages for seven days so again this was this group of frequent consumers who were consuming them you know, two, three cans of Coke a day. And when they were told to not consume them over seven days, according to food diaries, they consumed more calories. And again, they felt more guilty and they craved foods more as well compared to a control group who consumed them as normal. Gosh, well, that's really interesting. And so, I kind yeah, of, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about low cal. I'm, I'm wary of like things like Diet Coke anyway, because for me, it's like I'm at an age where it's like drinking battery acid in that it just causes me terrible, gives me terrible indigestion. And I worry about the effect on my teeth. <laughs> which is very random but um i quite like having them from time to time though i went through i went through a period of years where i didn't touch them i kind of i i i would i would cheerfully have them still now the only thing i wonder is about it there are other effects perhaps of the sweeteners and other health effects that we need to be mindful of but obviously in terms of this the aspect you were looking at um possibly beneficial to some people i think they're beneficial to some people. So I think if you're somebody who is consuming a lot of sugar-containing beverages, 
So if you're mm-hmm. a heavy Coke or whatever drinker, um, you really enjoy those beverages. Yeah, that's going to be adding a lot of calories because the calories in, you know, they are calorific, these beverages, and drink calories, we don't tend to compensate for them. They don't have such a strong effect on satiety. So there is pretty good evidence that consumption of sugar-containing beverages is associated with high levels of obesity and also tooth decay, lots of other negative health outcomes so if you're somebody who really does like and this goes back to what i was saying about pleasure if for you your pleasure is drinking your sugar containing beverages and then your gp or somebody tells you, you know you've got to cut those out and you've got to drink water <laughs> you're probably going to find that really hard and then that's your nice you know your bit of pleasure which you enjoy which you get your reward from being taken out of your life and then you're probably going to feel quite miserable and bereft and this is all horrible um so actually i think that's where they can be really useful because if you can make that switch from coke to diet coke you've still got the nice you've still got the taste you've still got the sweet tasting products which you know a lot of people do enjoy but you haven't got the calories yeah um so but, but if you're somebody who never drinks sweet drinks and then you suddenly start consuming low yeah. calorie sweet beverages well that's not going to do anything you have to substitute it for something so that's really important and i think that's why you do see a lot of conflicting evidence about low calorie sweetened beverages um you know there is um the, the, the yeah you'll often see news articles saying well they're good they're bad yeah um, and i think it's very very cons- confusing for consumers unless you kind of really read the detail of the studies and I think what's really important is what are they compared to yeah so if they're being compared to a calorie containing drink then there is going to be a reduction in calories um, according to the evidence but if, if it's not being substituted for anything then it, you know it's not, it's not like a magic bullet it's not yeah. just going to make you lose weight it's almost like the analogy between cigarettes and e-cigarettes that if you're on, yeah. you're going from full fat Coke to diet Coke is a bit like, yeah. there's still a bit of, there's probably still some harm with e-cigarettes, but it's a sick order of magnitude less than the harm from smoking. Yeah, right. I think it's a very good analogy. And I think the sort of debate that you get around low calorie sweeteners is, is similar to, to what you get around, around e-cigs as well. Uh, but I think, yeah, sure, in an ideal world, we would all just drink water. It would be a lot cheaper and and everything. But I think we have to accept that for a lot of people, that's going to be difficult to do. And if you're somebody who if you grew up from a, you know, from a young age as a young child, consuming a lot of sweet-tasting drinks, then it, it is going to be difficult because if that's what you're used to, you know, we, we like what we're used to. Yeah. I mean, that's particularly true food preferences which is why that early childhood period is um is really important yeah so a lot of this comes back to the whole problem with obesity and we should launch into that a little bit from the psychology and eating perspective what are the big concerns with obesity and how we approach it and how we perhaps should be approaching it in a slightly different and more constructive way so I think for me, the big concern is in obesity is this sort of culture of personal blame. So we're very kind of quick to blame individuals. I think in, in our culture, kind of see obesity as sort of a, a result of personal choice and that people who have obesity have obesity because they've made bad choices, because they eat too much, and they don't exercise enough. Um, so we're, we're a pretty unforgiving culture towards people who have problems with their, their weight. Um, despite the fact that actually the majority of people living in the UK either have overweight or obesity. Yes. So, so 
you know, it is, uh, you are, yeah, living in this country, you are actually more likely to have a BMI, which means you're in the overweight category or you have obesity. Uh, but yeah, we're very kind of unforgiving of this and critical. Um, and then if you sort of look at how, if you look at how our environment is set up and you kind of think, well, of course, most people are going to have overweight or have obesity because our environment is set up in that way. So if you think first of all about eating food, well, how easy is it to go and buy unhealthy food? You know, you'll if you go out pretty, I mean, in most places in the UK, if you go out, you're going to find it much more quickly, much more easy to buy a bar of chocolate than an apple. And you might find that your unhealthy food is cheaper than your healthier food. So you're talking about price, availability, um, you know, the marketing, the buy one, get one freeze, um, and just how easy we make it. I mean, now you can order takeaway using your phone and you don't even need to get off the sofa you can be sat on the sofa with your phone press a few buttons and then you know whatever 15 minutes later takeaway is delivered to your door so we've completely kind of cut out the physical activity and the need to sort of go and forage for food as we would have done in our evolutionary past and sort of opportunities for physical activity are really reduced um, we're very dependent on cars um you know, it's not. Some neighbourhoods aren't great for walking. Uh, we're not brilliant on um, cycling, on um, sort of making um, our cities more amenable to cycling. So there's just a whole host of factors, really, which um, conspire to make our environment obesogenic. And you often hear people talking about the obesogenic environment. And what that means is just the availability of unhealthy foods and the low price. Um, and also the lack of opportunities for physical activity and there's many many reasons for that you know particularly with with kids with um the safety concerns so you know sort of 50 years ago there was a culture of well not even that i mean probably <laughs> 20 30 years ago there was a lot more of a culture of sort of playing out and being out and about and outdoors and safety concerns and traffic and things like that have probably curtailed that so there have been these you know uh, pretty fundamental shifts which i think have had impacts on on our health behaviors and on our physical activity in particular yeah i've certainly been one that's rambled on about the obesogenic environment for years not that, yeah. not that i've yeah. done any specific research because i just think you've only got to take a walk down our high street to uh, to re recognize just the cast you know it's just like a catastrophically difficult environment to 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 exist in without eating beyond what we should have it's just every other shop is offering high calorie easily accessible yeah. food um there's a we're constantly bombarded we've only got so much resistance haven't we and i guess that's a sort of psychological yeah. thing about upselling yeah, yeah, yeah. there's only so yeah. much we can stand of that kind of upselling before we cave in yeah and if you're somebody on a diet so it's going back to what we were saying earlier about you know our person who gets the things i'm going to be really good today i'm not going to have any bad food and then you kind of walk out of your house and you're just bombarded with it you know it's everywhere so it's particularly difficult for people who are actually trying to control their intake and, and trying to control their weight because it's the opportunities to overconsume are everywhere. Um, and it really requires a huge amount of willpower to actually not overconsume, particularly if you are somebody who's really food responsive. And we know there are a lot of individual differences in how responsive we are to food or to food cues. So by food cues, I mean just like the sight of food, seeing a billboard, with tasty food, you know, walking down a high street and seeing a takeaway. Some people, I think, will just walk straight past those and not be bothered. But other people, 
you know, that, that will be quite important for them. They'll, they'll see okay. that and think, oh, tasty food, oh, that, that, oh I'm that, hungry. Yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. So there's quite a bit of variability in how people respond to those sort of cues. Massive variability. And we're learning more about that. and We actually think it's, it's genetic. Okay. So we know that there is a genetic basis to obesity. And there's also new studies coming out which are suggesting that, that that is actually expressed by differences in things like how responsive we are to food, how responsive we are to satiety signals. So some people will get really full up very quickly from eating and not want to eat anymore. Some people eat very slowly, get a bit bored of eating, whereas other people might be kind of like, oh, food, oh, I want some food and eat very quickly and not feel very full. It's an interesting aspect with children there. It might be even more obvious, mightn't it? That, because certainly my son, but he's at a, he's at a diff- it's a challenging age because he's at that point of teenagehood where he'll eat just constantly, almost, and terrifyingly. But I'm very aware that he couldn't buy, he couldn't walk past the McDonald's poster without pretty much wanting to eat one immediately. Now, that may just be a developmental thing at his age and he's just, he's just darn hungry um as it, at the moment but um, it may well be that that's you know there is something there in terms of just his makeup that actually he's more easily triggered than perhaps his potentially. siblings yeah yeah potentially it's, it's yeah, i mean there'll be the social factors as well so if that's what mm. everything else everybody else i think that's definitely something i noticed with my daughter who she's 10 but um you know, she didn't have go to McDonald's or you know in earlier life but as soon as she started talking to other kids and sort of realized that everyone else is going there then suddenly became very interested um but yeah certainly we think genetics can play a role there just in terms of how responsive we are to food and how you know that might kind of lead us to eat and then how we are able to control our our behavior around food uh, but that that sort of sorry to say it links to obesity as well and going back to the point about sort of personal responsibility it's actually what we know from the science is that there's a strong genetic basis to obesity so we're not born equal in terms of our susceptibility to obesity there will be some people who have just been a bit unlucky and just inherited a load of genes which make them more likely to gain weight so this whole sort of personal responsibility argument and that you know blaming people kind of goes completely against what we know from the science which is that actually loads of people are just sort of battling against their biology yeah um, which is kind of encouraging them to overeat and then you put people in an environment like we have here and it's it's just well it's inevitable what's going to happen yeah there's the, the choice is very much an illusion at that point is is there's there's simply you're really kidding yourself if you think that people still have really in on the grand scheme of things have any reasonable amount of choice when you put all those factors mm-hmm. together yeah, and so yeah, the other thing I was going to mention, you had a paper in um, paediatrics I think you were involved in as well just recently, which was the yeah. social media influencer marketing and children's food in- intake. So it was, it was interesting because it was a randomised trial as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so again, an absolutely fascinating area. So this is work by um, one of our PhD students and a coach, so my colleague, uh, Dr. Emma Boyland at University of Liverpool. Um, but yeah, social media, that's, you know, wow, such a, a new development and... So, so much opportunity there to influence our eating and to kind of portray these sorts of messages about eating and weight and diet, etc. So in that study, so we had uh, well-known bloggers who kids would be familiar with from YouTube and they were um, either shown with an unhealthy food item or a healthy food item. And then what we wanted to look at was how does that impact then what the kids would, would eat if they were in sort of a, a free choice um, eating situation. And we found that there was a clear effect of what the bloggers were endorsing. So 
if the blogger was seen with an unhealthy food item, the kids then went on to eat more unhealthy foods. And this was all compared to a control condition. But then really interestingly, we didn't see the same effect for the healthy food item, which is, you know, you you might kind of hope, well, maybe if they just endorse healthy food, then we'll we'll see an effect there. But it didn't work the other way. Oh, how how devastating! Because uh, I, I was I was looking at I've just read the abstract. I haven't read the full paper, and I just I was I, and I read that the the influencers with healthy snacks didn't significantly affect intake. Because you'd think that'd be the thing, wouldn't it? That'd be fabulous. I, I, your your daughter may not be quite old enough yet, but my kids are all over YouTube and vloggers. I, they are just they need to be crowbarred off with punitive measures in terms of screen time these days. It's an ongoing battle. So it's really it's really alarming that well, it's not alarming, but it's just important to be aware that they are having a huge influence. These they are because there is legislation around um, marketing of foods during children's television programs. Mm. But that's all on, on TV. But actually, a lot of kids now are spending significant amounts of time on the internet and and on uh, websites like YouTube watching vloggers so kind of i think you know our viewing habits of have massively changed uh you know with with, with all the you know pay, uh different options for tv viewing anyway but actually also the internet yeah um, and actually what goes on on the internet it's very difficult to regulate difficult to kind of know what's going on and uh there just hasn't been very much there's not much research either yeah yeah very difficult and obviously when it comes to obesity in children that's very um, hard to manage. I know that you've done a, you've commented on this before. I've done a little bit of work around this kind of emotional problems with obesity and and childhood, and perhaps this whole problem of stigma. So we had a study out earlier this year where we looked at um, a large sample of kids who were taking part in the Millennium Cohort Study. So this is a very big sample of, of um, young people from across the UK. They were recruited at the start at the turn of the new millennium, and they've been followed up ever since. Um, so we used data from when the kids were aged around three years of age up until they were aged 14. And that there, there are repeated measurements taken from these uh, young people at regular intervals. And what we were interested in there was how BMI might increase and how increases in BMI, body mass index, might be associated with changes in um, mental health symptoms. So essentially, we want to know, is there an association in the development of obesity with the development of mental health problems? And what we found there was that before the age of seven, there wasn't any um, obvious um, association between how these two health outcomes were um, developing. But once we got past the age of seven, we did see evidence of what we call co-development, which is essentially increases in BMI were also associated with increases in mental health problems. So it's this later childhood and early adolescent period where obesity and mental health problems appear to be coming increasingly intertwined and going hand in hand. But we're not seeing that in earlier childhood. Interesting. And of course, there's obviously going to have to be a tremendous amount of work to unpick that relationship. And in terms of there's obviously an association, and as you say, intertwine is yeah. a good way to put it, but no one's suggesting causal links either no, in either direction no. as it stands, but clearly important no. association. No, so we couldn't talk about causality because it, was a, it, it wasn't a randomised control trial, so we haven't manipulated or um, 
anything in that in that way. We controlled for lots of uh, potential confounders. And one of the obvious confounders there is socioeconomic status, mm. because we know from loads of research that children from more deprived backgrounds are more likely to have both obesity and mental health problems. So really important to control for that in the analysis, because it could all just be due to shared risk with socioeconomic deprivation. And once we controlled for socioeconomic status, we found that the relationship reduced slightly, but it was still statistically significant. So what's that, what that tells us is that socioeconomic disadvantage might partly explain the association, but it's not the only story. It's not the only factor. So even when that was accounted for, there is still evidence that there are unique relationships and loads of reasons for why um, that, that might be, which we couldn't really get into in the paper but obesity might be associated. So obesity could cause mental health problem um, due to things like stigmatization. So if somebody has lots of um, you know, negative experiences due to their body weight, if they're bullied or teased, which they then internalize and start to feel bad about themselves, then this can be very problematic for mental health. And then people who have mental health problems might be dealing with that mental health problem by consuming food and then that can be associated with greater risk of obesity. So I think it's very definitely a bi-directional relationship. I don't think it's the case that one causes the other. I think it's going to be different in different people but I think what our research shows is that they're intertwined. So it's and, yeah. it, and you can see how it's very difficult to sort of break out of that vicious circle. That whole eating to cope, I think it's been, I've seen that described as uh, that kind of mechanism is really important. But I guess it's something we all, even people who are not necessarily suffering from mental health disorders or uh, we all can fall. And I think we talked about this right at the start. We can all fall into that mode where we start to eat for pleasure, eat to, you know, that treat when you come home, that there's all sorts of ways that our mood and if we're anxious or sad or stressed that we use food to try to soothe ourselves in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of us do it. Most people, I think, would say, yes, I have done that. And, it, you know, it's completely understandable. I think it, but I think if it, it can, if it's done on a very regular basis and, and if the individual doesn't have a more adaptive way of coping with emotional distress, then it, it can become problematic. And we know that this sort of prolonged eating to cope is associated with higher risk of obesity but also mental health and eating disorders so that's one of the things you see a lot in things like binge eating disorder is that the binge is often tri triggered by emotional disturbances and then actually following the binge the emotional state actually becomes worse so it's sort of just a short-term thing really but actually the individual will often tend to feel worse and guilty yeah. and you get them sort of in a vicious cycle yeah so um just to finish off, Charlotte, one little thing I wanted to ask you about, I say it's a little thing, but you've had a couple of, several papers around this, that I'd be really interested in that, it's the um, the whole portion size and plate clearing tendencies, which is often one of those like informal bits of advice. And actually, until I came across some of your articles, I haven't seen any hard, much hard research on this, mm -hmm. about how much food we have and whether or not we finish what's on our plate. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just talk to that for a, a, for a, for a, for a brief moment. Sure. So, I mean, anecdotally, when you talk to people, they'll often say, oh, well, I always clear my plate because I'm always told to <laughs> at home. I was always told you have to eat everything. And it's certainly a memory that I have. And I, I quite often put that back down, I think, to maybe like our parents' generation of sort of growing up, sort of when food was, was rationed and food was in very short supply and, 
you weren't in this sort of food sensible environment. So it was this real, you know, you, you must you should wait food. Everything has to be eaten. Um, so, and, and I guess it's sort of we know that parental feeding practices are very important um, in terms of how we um, then later go on to approach food. So I guess it was sort of motivated by that, that sort of anecdotal sort of evidence of what people had said. But so in one of the studies, for example, we just asked people what to what extent do they remember being asked to clear their plates? And we found that that, that was associated with having a higher body mass index. Um, I mean, there is this very big literature, as I've said, about parental feeding mm. and effects on weight and effects on kind of later weight and eating behaviour. And I think sort of the consensus is that actually that it's not good to be too controlling is it that one, one idea is if the parent is too controlling, then the child might never learn to sort of control their own intake themselves. So like often we're encouraged to to eat in sort of a mindful way. So when we're eating, try to focus on our physiological sensations and actually try to eat and stop eating when we become full rather than say, I'm going to stop eating when all the food has gone. Mm. Um, so that is a strategy that quite often um, people will use to try to, to help them to lose weight or to, to eat less is to actually try to eat more in tune with their bodies and stop eating when they feel full rather than stopping eating when all the food's gone. Yeah. But it, I think it is a difficult thing to do if you have it in your head, I have to clear my plate. And mm. I think it really comes into play when we go out to eat in restaurants. Because the restaurant's always going to give us this massive portion because restaurants, they work, well, not all, actually not all restaurants, but some restaurants will, will give large portions because they don't want people to feel shortchanged. So quite often you'll get a portion size that is much, much larger than you would prepare for yourself. But again, often we kind of feel, oh, well, I must eat all this because I paid all this money for this food and I, I must finish my plate. Um, and I think that just goes back to what I was saying, what we said about food responsivity and and how easy it is for us to kind of overconsume when food is available. You know, we don't really seem to have this sort of switch where we just stop eating because we've had enough. No. It, it's hard to do that, and particularly if you are tucking into something that's very tasty and nice. Then you yeah. might. I mean, a really good example is Christmas dinner. You know, on Christmas dinner, the number of the, the amount of, of, of calories that we must consume on that day. But and, and quite often on Christmas dinner, we. We, will, we might keep eating, even though we're feeling really full. I know I've certainly done that. I've been really, really full, but I've thought, well, I want my Christmas pudding, so I'm going to, to keep eating because I know it's going to taste very nice. And so it just goes back to this point about pleasure and how important that is, and that there are a lot of occasions where we will continue to eat despite being really, really full because the food just still tastes really nice. Yeah, and there's, it always strikes me that there's a... As you say, there we sometimes don't even know when we have had enough or what is normal, and that actually, you know, what feels normal in terms of actually, I've realised over the years that what I thought thought was the right, correct amount of food was actually probably far too much. That is me over full, and in fact, I often, if I'm eating the right amount of food, I usually end up will feel I'll feel a little bit hungry at the end of dinner. Yeah, it short changed. Yeah. yeah, and actually, but that's normal. That's how I should feel. And if I don't stop at that point, then I over a period of time, I put weight on. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's sort of this portion distortion mm. idea. Because actually, you know, cereal's a really good example. And anyone who's done any dieting will know this. If you actually weigh out the 30 grams of cereal, it <laughs> is tiny. And yeah. if you look at the portion sizes on the back of the front of the cereal, it's 
absolutely not 30 grams. Um, and so we did a study on that where we just showed people different sized portions. So if people were shown large portions of food, they were then more likely to say that a large portion was more normal yeah. and more what they would want to eat. So again, sort of going back to being bombarded by all these different types of food and food show, food in large portions, you know, quite often now if you want to go out and buy um, some crisps or some chocolate, it won't be served in a oh. one serving. It will be sort of multi-packed, two servings. And But actually, if you've opened it and you've kind of yeah. had a few, it's difficult to stop eating. And there's no... Yeah, and there's no question that the evidence from the psychological side shows that once that's open, you will plough through it to a far greater extent. And the food, yeah. in, the food industry is scandalous in this regard because they are, they, and they try and duck around it these days by saying, you know, this pack or you know, for sharing or will be written sharing. on words on yeah. it, and that's absolute yeah. nonsense because that's one person that's going to eat that. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it all goes back to deciding about what people should be given a choice. We're just making these products available for people yeah. so they have a choice. But as we've discussed, actually, that choice is going to be incredibly difficult for huge numbers of the population. So, yeah, I think they have a lot to answer for. Charlotte, listen, I could actually talk for hours about this. It's fascinating. And thank you so much because you've, you've, you've just even at the moment, just introduced so many different areas and your research has just covered so many fascinating aspects of eating and how we think about it and all these different factors that we need to consider um, could you tell us a little bit more about where we can find out about all your work and people can dig in further yeah sure so um, if you look me up on the university of liverpool uh website so if you just google dr charlotte hardman university of liverpool it will come up with my page but i'm also on twitter um where i tweet regularly about recent research um in eating and obesity um, yeah, and I'm always happy to. I, I love talking about um, all, all this stuff. I think it's just so interesting and important, and always happy to do so. Charlotte, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.